I invite you tonight to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Right now we are focusing our attention on what is one of the most notorious events in the history of Israel as a nation. And when I say notorious, I mean that in the way that that word sometimes has the connotation of notorious, but not for good reasons. This is the preeminent failure of Israel as a people. No sooner had they finished agreeing to the covenant, Moses is up on the mountain receiving instructions for the tabernacle, and they break the covenant. The very first two commands, it's like the foundation of the whole covenant that God is entering into with these people, the very foundation they break. No other gods before me. Don't make any graven images, no likeness of anything. They violate those commands. They make a calf out of gold and they bow down to it. And they say, these are the gods, Israel, that brought you up out of Egypt. It was the height of betrayal. It was blasphemy in the eyes of God. It was complete and utter rebellion. And so it's no wonder then that in Exodus 32, God says in verses 9 and 10, that he wants to destroy these people. He says to Moses, leave me alone so my anger can burn against them that I may destroy them and that I'll make you into a great nation. But Moses interceded, didn't he? Moses, in his role as the leader of the people, as a prophet of God, as a mediator between God and the Israelite people, he prefigured Christ, didn't he? He prefigured the great intercession, the great mediation of Christ between a holy God and sinful people. And Moses stood there in the gap between God and the people and said, Lord, please don't destroy them for the sake of your name, for your glory, for your fame, for your promises that you've made. And the Lord listened to Moses. He did not follow through on that threat to destroy them. But there were still repercussions, weren't there? There were still repercussions. There were still consequences. Moses comes down. He sees the people. He sees what they're doing. He sees their idolatry. And in anger, matching, mirroring the the holy, righteous anger of the Lord, Moses destroys that gold calf, burns it, grinds down whatever is left, tosses it into the water, and makes the people drink it. As a sign of judgment, as a test, if you will, to see whether their hearts were with the Lord or not. But that wasn't the end of it. Moses says, whoever is with me, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And the Levites rallied to Moses' side, and Moses said, now go through and dispense God's justice. And they went through, and they put to death by the sword 3,000 Israelite people. Perhaps some of those that were recalcitrant, stubborn, refused to repent, or those who were maybe ringleaders in in the movement, they died. They were put to death. But Moses, still understanding how incredibly wicked this sin was, Moses goes back up to the top of the mountain again to intercede for a second time on behalf of the people. And says, perhaps I can request of the Lord atonement for your sins. And he goes back up to the top. And and according to another place 
in Deuteronomy, Moses was up there for another 40 days and 40 nights for his second intercession. And again, the Lord says he will not destroy the people, but there will be a plague. And a plague came on the people. And we don't know precisely how many died, but a large number of people died in this plague. And then we find in chapter 33, verse 1, the Lord's instruction to Moses. And so the Lord says to Moses, leave this place, referring to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you. And drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. And no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Let's, Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come before your word tonight, we want to know you. We want to know who you are in your holy, righteous, and just character. We want to see that holiness on display in your word tonight. We want to learn more of your mercy and your grace. We want to learn more about how you as a holy God can dwell in the midst of a sinful people. Lord, I I pray that you would help us as we look to your word tonight. Help us to learn the truths that are here, and may we apply them to our lives. May they move our hearts to worship and to honor you. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I think one of the things that this passage teaches us is that the Lord's holy anger is not easily appeased. The Lord's holy anger is not easily appeased. That is his holy anger against sin. The Lord's holy anger against sin is not easily appeased. I mentioned a few moments ago that Moses had already caused the people of Israel to drink the remnants of the burned idol that he destroyed. The Levites had already gone through the camp and put 3,000 to death. The Lord had already sent a plague through the people, probably some kind of illness that resulted in many deaths. And yet still, there are hints here in chapter 33, verses 1 through 6. There are, there are elements in this passage that show us that the Lord is still righteously, holy, angry with these people. And I think we see it in a few different ways. One is in verse number 1, where the Lord says to Moses, leave this place. And, and the way the Hebrew is there, it's, it's actually two verbs. The NIV just has one, leave this place. There's actually two verbs there. One is the command, go. And there's another imperative, go up. So it's literally go and go up. 
And, and as you read those together, it's almost as if you put those two imperative verbs together. It's almost as if God is saying, get out of here. Go away from this place. What is significant about this place? This is where the Lord's presence is, isn't it? This is where the Lord's presence is. And we, we've seen before in this narrative that Mount Sinai is a holy place when God is there. He told the people, don't, he told Moses, don't let the people approach. Don't let them get near the mountain. Put a boundary around the mountain. Earlier on, we saw that the Lord had told Moses, if anybody crosses that boundary that I've told you to put up, he will die. And so now the Lord is saying, in response to everything that's happened, leave this place. And, and the way I read that, especially in the context, it's almost as if Lord is saying, I don't want you in my presence right now. Go. He is still in holy, righteous anger with these people. And so they've already gone through these punishments, the Levites, the plague, but still that does not fully atone for their sin, does it? It can't fully atone for their sin. Even if they were to offer as a sacrifice every animal that they had, it would not fully atone for their sin because this was a very vile and heinous sin in the sight of God. And so we see, I think, some evidence of the Lord's abiding anger here when he says, get up, go away. And I think we also see it in verse number one when the Lord says to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. It's the same language that we saw before when the Lord first saw their sin and was angry about it. In chapter 32, verses 9 and 10, the Lord said to Moses, go down there and take care of your people. Your people that you brought up out of Egypt, they've already become corrupt and have turned aside from the way. And so now here, even after the punishments, God is still referring to them, to Moses as your people. He's still angry with them. We also see it in this passage that the Lord's holy anger is still burning against them because he says to Moses, I will send my angel with you, but I will not go with you. So the Lord is saying, I will send my representative. I will send my messenger. That's literally what an angel is, is a messenger, an emissary on behalf of God. God says, I will send my angel, but I, my presence will not go with you. He says, or I might destroy you. We see in this passage also that the Lord refers to them as a stiff-necked people. He says, "You are a st- these people, they're stiff-necked, they're stubborn, they're obstinate. I've seen these people. And if I were to go along with you in the way, I might destroy them. We also see in this passage where the Lord tells the people to mourn and to take off their ornaments. And he says at the end of verse number five, now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So there are several elements in this passage that, that still convey the Lord's holy frustration and anger with these people. If we can put it in those emotional type terms. The Lord is a holy God, isn't he? 
He's a holy God. He is a righteous God. He is perfect, absolute perfection in righteousness. And he graciously, mercifully entered into a covenant with these people based on the promises that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And no sooner was the ink dry on that covenant, so to speak, that they were already breaking it. And God is rightly, justly angry with them. And the the limited punishments that God had already done was not sufficient to cover the guilt of their sin. He is still angry with them. And so his anger is not easily appeased. Which, to carry this forward in biblical theology into the New Testament, that's why we need Christ. Because the holy, righteous anger of the Lord is not easily appeased. We cannot atone for our own sins. There's there's no amount of good that we could possibly do to make up for or to undo our sins. Even all of the animal sacrifices that God had prescribed. Now, God prescribed them, right? They were in the law. God had said, here is how you will make atonement. Here is how your sins will be forgiven. But based on a New Testament perspective, we understand that those Old Testament sacrifices, all of those animals, they were merely provisional, weren't they? They were merely provisional, meaning they weren't ultimate, they weren't final, they weren't the full final atonement for those sins. And so a a full, complete Redemption, a full, complete atonement was required in order to appease the wrath of God. And that propitiation that appeased the wrath of God was Christ. Christ, in his death on the cross, his atoning sacrifice, that is what appeased the holy wrath of God. But we see here the holy character of God, and we can see how his holy wrath is not easily appeased. It took the sacrifice of the Son of God to appease the wrath of God. He is a holy Lord. I think this passage also teaches us, we can see in these few verses, that the vileness of our sin is an affront to a holy God, and so he must mediate his presence for our own good. Our sin, the vileness of our sin is an affront to a holy God, so he must mediate his presence for our own good. And we've seen this theme already in Exodus that that God's presence in the midst of his people is a mediated presence. What do I mean by that? I mean that, that the average Israelite could not be in the direct face-to-face presence of the holy, majestic, glorious God. Later in this passage, moving into later chapter 33 and into chapter 34, we will see that not even Moses himself can see the face of God. So God's holy, majestic, glorious presence is mediated so that it's... There's a, there's a middle there. That's the idea of mediation. There, there's some separation there. 
between God's full, majestic, glorious presence and sinful people. And we see that mediation even more so in this passage when the Lord says to Moses, I myself am not going to go with you. I'm going to give you an angel who will go with you. An angel, a messenger. Now, in different places in scripture, we can see that an angel of God was there to guide God's people, was there to uh, protect, to lead God's people. We, I, we see a very close resemblance to the, to the wording here in Genesis 24, verse 7, with the servant of Abraham going to find a wife for Isaac. In Genesis 24, verse 7, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, this is Abraham speaking to his servant, The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. Which, by the way, that's also quoted here in Exodus 33. But then he goes on, he says, He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. It's almost the exact same language. So God is is leading his people. He is directing his people. He is leading them to the promised land. He told them, I'm taking you now. I want you to go to the land of the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the land that I swore to Abraham. But there is a little separation that God is intentionally putting there when he says, I am not going to go with you, but I'll send my angel with you. He's mediating his presence. And here's the thing. It's for our good that God does that. It's for the good of the Israelite people that he says he is not going to go with them, but send his angel. Why? Because he says, if I were to go with you even for a moment, I would destroy you. And the lesson there is that to be in the direct presence of the holy majestic God as a sinful being is to face instant destruction. And so God's presence must be mediated for, for him to be with and among sinful people. How does that teach us, or how does that reflect or point to what Jesus Christ has done to us, or done for us? In the New Testament, we have one great mediator, don't we? We have Jesus Christ, who is our mediator. He is the one who took down the veil of the tabernacle, of the temple. He is the one that essentially brought an end to the mediation of the high priesthood of Aaron and his sons. He is the one who brought an end to the animal sacrifices that were made on behalf of our sins. He is the one who stands or sits at the right hand of God and makes intercession for us. Paul says in 1 1 Timothy that we have one mediator between God and man. And that is the man, Christ Jesus. And so through Christ, through his mediation, we have access to a holy God. Through his mediation, we can come before the throne of grace and find help in time of need. Through his mediation, think about this, we have the Holy Spirit of God in us. Think about that. 
what are we talking about here? What aspect of God's character are we talking about here? We're talking about his holiness, aren't we? What is the defining attribute or the label that is always attached to the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God, is holy. The Holy Spirit of God, the very presence of God, fully equal, 100% God, as much as the Father and as much as the Son is in us and with us. How could that possibly be when you read a passage like this and you see God in his holiness trying to deal with sinful, rebellious, stiff-necked people and he says, I can't even bear to go with them for a moment or they would be destroyed. But now God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity can be inside of us and among us as we meet together as God's people. The only answer is Christ. Because the Holy Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son. And Jesus says, when I go to be with my Father, I will send the Spirit. And he will be with you and in you. Jesus is our great mediator. But a holy God cannot dwell in the midst of sin without that being mediated. But praise God, we have a mediator in Jesus Christ. This passage also, I think, teaches us that even though we don't deserve it, sinners still receive the benefits of the Lord's faithful promises. Even though we don't deserve it, sinners, we still receive the benefits of the Lord's faithful promises. The amazing thing about this passage is that God, even after all that these people had done in their rebellion, their betrayal of God, their breaking of the covenant, God says to them, I'm still taking you to the land of promise. I'm still taking you to the land of promise. And he, he, he gives the exact description, the same description of the land that he gave to Abraham. It's the land of the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And we read all those ites, and we think, what does this mean to me? Well, here's really what it means in the context here. And every time that this description is used, the reason why it is repeated so many times is to show that God is faithful in keeping his promises exactly. Because what God told Abraham is, I want you to look, look around you. This is the land that I'm giving you. What land is it? It's the land of the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Parasites and the Jebusites. So this is repeated so many times throughout scripture to remind us that God, when he makes a promise, he fulfills it and he fulfills it exactly. So God doesn't say, I promised you this land, but that one's not available anymore. I'm going to give you this piece of land over here. God doesn't do that. He says, I promised Abraham and his descendants this land, and that is exactly the land that I'm going to give them. Even though they were unfaithful, God remained true. And his promises remained steady. Now, did those people deserve it? Did those people deserve a land flowing with milk and honey? Which is a metaphor for a good land, right? It's a land that is, it's lush, it's, it's fertile, it's, it's got lots of potential to supply the needs of God's people. They weren't worthy of that land. But God says, I'm faithful to my promises. Even though you don't deserve it, 
I'm faithful to my promises. And this passage, more than anything else, should be a reminder to the Israelites and also to us that whatever we receive from the Lord is not earned. Whatever we receive from the Lord is not earned. It is a gift of grace, isn't it? These people did not earn the land flowing with milk and honey, but God blessed it to them anyway because he's a faithful God. This passage also teaches us, I think, that the only proper response from our side, the only proper response to our sin and guilt in the eyes of God is trust and repentance. The only proper response to our sin and our guilt in the eyes of God is a true and honest repentance and trust in God. And I think there are a few things in this passage that show us that the people, these stiff-necked, stubborn people, are actually repenting. And they're showing some remorse over their sin. If you look in verse number four, it says, when the people heard these distressing words, what distressing words? What was most distressing about the message that Moses brought them? It was that God wasn't going with them. And it's for that that Moses then intercedes again on behalf of the people and begs God to go with them. That's what was so distressing is that the Lord said, I'm not going with them. And so what was their response? They mourned. They mourned. This is a mourning of of brokenness. This is a mourning of I believe, recognition of their sin. This is a mourning of sorrow. I believe that at this point, they are starting to have their eyes open to see the sin, the nature of their sin against God. And they're mourning over it. In addition to that, that what shows repentance and faith is where it says that they took off their ornaments And they put them aside. You say, how does that show repentance and faith? In a couple of ways. One is this, that that when you are in mourning and in sorrow before God, you're not concerned about being your best dressed self, if that makes sense. In other words, in the ancient world, a a sign of repentance was was shown physically by the way that they dressed, by the way that they adorned themselves. And so oftentimes in scripture, we'll hear the phrase, they put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. That's an image of repentance. So is this, that, that they would take off their best clothes, take off any jewelry that they had, and they would set it aside, and they would, they would show themselves to be the humble, poor, dependent people that they were in the sight of God. And I think there's a a very strong irony here, isn't there? That what did they use to make their false god? But ornaments, jewelry, pieces of jewelry, specifically rings of gold that Aaron melted down to make this calf that they bowed down to worship. And now God is saying to them, I want you to strip off all of that jewelry. 
I want it gone from you. And they comply. They take all of their ornaments, all their pieces of jewelry off to show their sorrow and their mourning. A couple of commentators that I read gave another reason why taking off their ornaments was a sign of repentance and faith. And that is because we have evidence from the Egyptian world, from other places in the ancient world, that their pieces of jewelry were not just beautiful pieces of jewelry. That their pieces of jewelry had theological meaning in their context. And when I say theological, I'm not talking about the true God. I'm talking about false gods. So, for example, in Egypt, they might have ornaments or pieces of jewelry that might be a representation or, or pointing to a certain god or goddess. And in ancient times, people would use these pieces of jewelry that were either dedicated to or, show, or showed images of particular gods or goddesses. They would use them like amulets with the idea that when they were wearing this, it gave them safety. It gave them protection. That somehow, if they were wearing this piece of jewelry that represented this God, that that God was watching over them. And by getting rid of these ornaments, they're showing, they're displaying, they're, they're no longer trusting in these gods. They're no longer trusting in the gods of Egypt. They're, not, they're no longer trusting in these little trinkets or these symbols of divine protection to watch over them. What are they trusting in? They're trusting in God. And the amazing thing is, is now, at least what God is telling them at this point, they will even have less than what they had before in terms of a visible manifestation of God's presence. And isn't that kind of what drove them to the golden calf in the first place? Is they wanted some kind of a visible representation of their God Something to look at, something to see, something they could touch, something that could engage their senses to let them know that their God or gods was there. And now God is saying, if you're truly going to be my people, you've got to get rid of all those things and I'm not going to go with you. Part of their punishment is God saying, I'm even going to give you less of a, a visible manifestation than you had before. But the people are mourning and they're broken over this and they comply with God's instruction and they get rid of these ornaments. And the NIV doesn't bring it out clearly, but the Hebrew, I think, is very clear that this wasn't just a one time getting rid of their jewelry and their ornamentation. The way the Hebrew reads is from this point on. So at Mount Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai, beginning now, beginning at this point, through the rest of their journey to the land of the Hittites and Jebusites and Perizzites, they would show their mourning and their repentance and their dedication to God by continuing to go without ornamentation, without jewelry and fancy clothing. They would show their continued loyalty and allegiance to God in that way, from this point forward. Now, are the Israelites perfect from this point forward? Obviously not. 
But at least at this point, I believe they're demonstrating genuine repentance and trust in God. And that's the right response, isn't it? When we sin before a holy God. That's the right response. There is nothing that can truly atone for our sin other than what God himself provides. And ultimately, he provided that in his son, Jesus Christ. So it's not that our, our repentance or our trust atones for our sin. No, Christ atones for our sin. But the appropriate response to what God has done for us in grace and mercy is repentance and faith. And we see that on display, I think, in this passage. And so this passage teaches us many things about how we can relate to a holy God On the one hand, a holy God cannot dwell in the midst of sin. He cannot look upon sin. He can't be there. His presence has to be mediated between his holiness and sinful people. But praise God that now in Christ, he has mediated that presence forever and finally in his son, Jesus Christ. And what's the call? What's the call? What's the response that is called for in the New Testament in response to what Christ has done? Believe in his name and repent. And so that is the proper response. And my prayer is that, and I believe that's the case, that everyone in this room has placed their faith and their trust in Christ and has turned from their sin to trust in Christ. But we need to carry that message forward, don't we? We need to continually be reminded that it is by the grace of God that we stand. And, and faith and turning from sin is not a one-time thing, is it? It's a continual mindset in the pattern of the life of a Christian. And so may we continue to be reminded of the grace that has been shown to us that allows us to be in the presence of a holy God and literally that his holy presence would be in and among us in his Holy Spirit. What a gracious thing that is. So may we be thankful and grateful for that grace and may we take the message of Christ forward to a people who are in danger of destruction, aren't they? A people who are in danger of destruction at the hands of a holy God, but there is a mediator that they can call upon to stand between them and a holy God, and that mediator draws them nigh to God and makes them at peace with God and forgives their sin, and they are part of the family of God. Let's bring that message forward and share it with those who are in danger of destruction. May God help us to do that. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you that even though we are a sinful people and in no way deserving of any goodness, any mercy or grace, yet, Lord, you have have chosen to display that mercy and grace to us regardless of our unworthiness of it. Lord, we thank you for all that Christ has done and continues to do for us in his high priestly work. We thank you that we can be called the children of God. We thank you that we can have your presence in us, permanently indwelling us in your Holy Spirit. Lord, may we be ever grateful for the acceptance that we can have with you based on the work of Christ. Lord, may we continue to be your holy people. May we live as your holy people. 
May we be your faithful messengers and ambassadors to the world. So God, help us to be light in this world that points people to your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.